Well, it is estimated there are more than 4,000 recognized religions in the world today. And of those thousands of religions in existence, three-fourths of all the people in the world practice only five of the major ones, and that would be Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Now, when we consider the concept of religion, however, it's important for us to note that there are essential elements to all of them. And really, if you boil it down, you you basically get to this. Essential elements would be belief in some sort of God or superhuman power and practices that define how faith and worship are to be exercised. That's really central to all major religions. Now, every religion in the world is man-made, we understand, except for one. And that is the faith in the one true God, according to the Word of God, which is the Bible. Now, the basis for this is Judaism. We know that to be true because the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 9.4 that Judaism, the religion of the Jews as we read it in Scripture, was the recipient of God's adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple and the promises. In other words, they had all the essential elements for true and lasting relationship with God. All that remained for them was to await the arrival of the Messiah to bring salvation. That really, when you boil it down, that is the only major difference between Judaism and Christianity is what do we think and believe about Jesus and His revelation, which we understand to be the New Testament. John tells us that when He, the Messiah, Jesus, came to His own, His own people did not receive Him. What happened? Why did they not receive Him? Well, over the course of hundreds of years, they had waited for Him, but Israel constructed a false religious system around what God had already given them and began to choke out their true religion and saving faith to the point where when God finally did come to visit them in the person of Christ, they killed Him. Why? Well, because they loved their sin and the self-made religion that coddled it. But the Lord knows all things. And while He was here on earth, He seized opportunities to rebuke the leaders of this false religion in order to rescue those who were caught in its trap. And so this morning we're going to encounter one of these such instances in Matthew chapter 15. So if you have a copy of Scripture, turn to Matthew chapter 15. We're moving right along here in our exposition of this gospel. The Lord Jesus, He's been ministering in the northern region of Galilee, northern Israel, and He's engaged in preaching and teaching and healing and miracle working. He's got a remarkable ministry. And we just read last time in chapter 14, um, more than 5,000 people, we believe upwards of twenty or 25,000 people, come to Him and He miraculously feeds them and He begins to heal them as well. He does all of this feeding through the miracle of the five barley loaves and two fish. He manifests a large meal for them, so much so that there's 12 baskets of food left over. And then he begins to minister to them, and he begins to travel all around Israel. And then word begins to spread that there's a man in Israel, in the northern region even, who's able to do wondrous things. And so people flock to him. They come out of the woodwork, all to come to Jesus to see and hear uh, hear him and learn from him and be healed by him. So what kinds of people get drawn to Jesus at this time? Well, it's the sick. 
and the afflicted and the poor and even the curious and the earnest and the faithful, but also the wicked. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father and mother. And by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Right did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. We'll stop right there. This account really brings us into the middle of of a sharp confrontation between Jesus and and the religious leaders of Israel. Now remember that Jesus and the disciples, they crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Jesus really crossed over on the water tops. We we talked about that last time. And they end up in the northern region here in the city of Capernaum, or at least the region around the city of Capernaum. Now while they're there, they're paid a visit, not by the local members of the synagogue. It wasn't the local leaders that come to see them, but likely members of the Sanhedrin that's traveled all the way from the capital the capital city of Jerusalem, which is some 80 miles away. So these religious leaders, they travel uh, certainly on horseback or on foot or by by chariot. They come all the way 80 miles to come and see Jesus. The delegation sets out, travels several days, all so they can confront him in person. Now, up to this point, Jesus has only been dealing with the Pharisees, and we see several uh, places where he's dealing with them. And who are the Pharisees? Well, they're the ultra-conservative members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling religious party in Israel. That's who they are. If you remember back to chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, they go after Jesus because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they get angry at him for that. Then they go after him again in chapter 12 by accusing his disciples of violating the Sabbath. Now, each time Jesus confronts them and confounds their efforts and even humiliates them in front of the people. And so now, if you notice, they have brought reinforcements. They bring with them the scribes. This is the first time we see the Pharisees and the scribes working together in the Gospel of Matthew. And who are the scribes? Well, they are the theologians of Israel. If anybody knows the law, it's the scribes. The Pharisees know the law too, and so do the Sadducees, but the scribes, these guys know their stuff. Backwards and forwards, up and down, they're the guys to talk to if you want to talk about the Bible, the tradition of the elders, anything is the scribes. And so now, through this unholy alliance, they believe that they have an airtight case against Jesus to prove once and for all that he is an enemy of Israel and an enemy of God. That's what they're going to do. And so verse 2, they bring this charge against him based on the disciples' behavior. Now note this very carefully here. They don't go after Jesus immediately, but verse 2, they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? Now a few things to note here. 
The first is that they're attacking not Jesus directly, but the disciples. Now, understand this clearly. You know what they're doing. They really are going after him. They're just kind of sliding it in. If they come right at him directly, they could have some problems because the crowds love Jesus already. They don't really uh, know the disciples as well. They're here for Jesus. And so if, he, if they attack the disciples, it's a kind of a side way in. But in truth, they're going after Jesus because he's the rabbi. And so by implication, this is his problem. Your disciples are doing this. Therefore, what are you teaching? And so that's the fruit of it. They want to poke holes in his ministry, and so they're going after Jesus through going through his uh, disciples. The second thing they do is they allege that the disciples are not washing their hands when they eat. Now, this is not a matter of personal hygiene. They're not talking about hygiene and cleanliness. They're talking about a, a ceremonial ritual pertaining to purification laws. And we know this because Mark in his gospel says that very same thing. This is religious rites, religious laws. And I was reading this week and and trying to understand the elaborate method that they would actually have to do. They have to dip their hands in water a certain way so the water runs down from the tip of the finger down to the elbow. And if it was only one, it didn't count. It had to be both. And very elaborate ritual for how to engage in these purification rites before they could partake in bread. I even read one scholar that talked about that uh, the Jews at that time believed that there were demons that would attach themselves to their hands, and so you had to wash your hands to get demons off and things like that. It's really just mysticism and, and superstition. Regardless of all that, they claim that by not washing their hands ceremonially, they are breaking the tradition of the elders. Well, what is that? What is the tradition of the elders? Well, to understand that, you have to go back in time a little bit. If you go back to the Babylonian captivity, that takes place, they come back from, the, from captivity, they're in, there in Babylon for 70 years, they come back right around 539 B.C., this is Israel I'm talking about here, and they return to their land and they begin to rebuild, not just physically, but also spiritually. And so the Jews are back in the Promised Land, and under Ezra, they begin to study God's law intently. Well, why? Because they want to obey God's law. Well, why do they want to do that? Well, because that, the disobedience of the law, is what got them put in captivity to begin with. They were disobeying the Mosaic Covenant over and over again to the point where God's patience runs out and he puts them into captivity as a discipline. And so they don't want to ever do that again. They don't ever want to incur the judgment of God to have to lose their land and go back into captivity. And so what do they do? They study God's law diligently. And then they begin to devise best practices for how they could keep and obey the law. Remember, we don't want to disobey any facet of the law at all. So we have to do everything we possibly can to be obedient and worship God rightly. Now, over time, these practices were passed along orally from generation to generation. Uh, Before too long, this oral tradition was known as a single body of teaching known as the uh, halakha. And soon, that was written down to form what we know to be the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the written-down form of the oral tradition, okay? Because it got so expansive, they had to write it down. And so now, you have these best practices that, before too long, are being codified into new religious laws. You see what they're doing? They've had these best, best practices surrounding the Bible, and now they're writing it down, and now this becomes the new law in addition to that law. That's what they're doing. And their theory behind this, and I've read this 
quite a bit from the Pharisees. Their theory is that they wanted to build a fence around the law, a protective fence. If we can build a fence around the law and we can observe these outer laws, it will stop us from breaking the really important laws. But now all you're doing is stacking law upon law upon law. And soon, what came to be known as the tradition of the elders became a law to itself and actually began to contradict the scriptures themselves. Ceremonial hand-washing was part of that tradition. Now, it wasn't that this came out of left field. I mean, there was a basis for this. The command itself found its origin in Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 to 21. Moses commands the priests of Israel to wash their hands and their feet before uh, ministering in the temple. This is a a ceremony of, of purification for the priests alone. But the Pharisees, in building a fence... Through the tradition of the elders, they began to extend that law to all of Israel for all mealtimes. So not just the priests anymore. You know what? We all have to do this now. And we have to do it all the time, every meal. This is something God never commanded. God never said to do that. Yet, this is their new law. Now, I want to be very clear. Washing your hands before you eat is not a bad thing. In fact, I would commend it to you highly for the sake of hygiene. But I would even add beyond that... Not even doing something by tradition. Even if you were to wash your hands ceremonially as a tradition, as a a visible sign to yourself that you want to be pure before God, I mean, that's certainly allowable. I don't know if people do that today, but that's not really a problem. The problem comes here. When your tradition becomes religious law that now binds your conscience and supersedes the Word of God. That's where tradition becomes a problem. Again, there's nothing wrong with tradition. We have traditions even at Harvest Bible Church for 10 years. Certain things we do every week that we just like to do, but they're not law-binding. If we, we could break it today, and it's not really a big deal. But when tradition becomes law, it begins to supersede divine authority. And the scribes and the Pharisees were notorious for this. In fact, one of the marks of the Apostle Paul in his life in Judaism, according to Galatians 1.14 was that he himself had become zealous for his ancestral traditions. He loved tradition. Because tradition is a way that you can identify and make yourself more holy, at least visibly. In fact, the tradition had become so much a source of pride for him that truly they marked out who he was as a, as a person, and he, it was a way for him to determine who was spiritual and who's not. And that's what, that's what law-abiding tradition does. It marks the haves and the have-nots. Oh, you don't keep that tradition? Oh, shame on you. Well, I keep this tradition so good for me. Paul knew that was a source of pride. And so he warns the Colossians in Colossians 2.8. He says, see to it. He's talking to the church. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men rather than according to Christ. He tells the church, when someone tries to bind you with tradition and sear your conscience and hold it captive, and not according to Christ, but only to the tradition or to the law, he says, watch out, don't let people do that to you. There's always the risk of traditions and formalism and and ritualism coming into the church and binding the consciences of believers, and it is wrong. And it's unwise, and it's hurtful. See, they were angry with Jesus because he was not demanding that the disciples were obeying their traditions. 
the tradition of the elders. In fact, they accuse him of breaking them. The Greek word means transgressing, and I would even go further and say they're accusing him of sin. How dare you break the tradition of the elders? Because remember, that, those are based on the word of God, so how dare you? Well, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 3. He fires right back. He answered and said to them, Why do you, the emphasis here is on you, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He turns it right back on them. Takes the exact same phraseology and turns it right back to them. Notice that he's making this accusation. Why do you do the very same thing only in reverse? You're accusing me and the disciples. Why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now certainly they would have been thinking to themselves, wait a second here. What what commandment have we broken? We, We have a fence around the law so we don't break commandments. We're really good at keeping commandments. How dare you say we're breaking God's law? Well, Jesus wastes no time here. He's very quick. Look at the next verse, verse 4. He tells them, For God said, forget the elders, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now, both of these quotations are from the Torah, from the first five books of the Old Testament. This comes specifically from Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land, and the Lord your God, which the Lord God gives you. He tells them that they're actually breaking the, the fifth commandment. They're failing to honor their father and mother. So you're breaking that one. But then he even goes deeper than that. A second command is referenced here from Exodus 21 verse 17. Now, Exodus 21, it begins a long list of laws that are pertaining to personal injury. You open up to Exodus 21, you'll just see law, 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 and they seem to be disconnected. Why are these all put together? Well, they're personal attacks and personal sins. Just to give you an example, uh, one of the rules is this. If you strike a man and he dies from it, there's a penalty for that. If you conspire to kill your neighbor, there's a penalty for that. If you kidnap somebody, there's a penalty for that. If you strike a woman who is pregnant... There's a penalty for that. These are serious crimes. And God mediates and and mets out punishment for these crimes. Now, sandwiched into all of those personal laws and personal attacks and personal sins, we read in Exodus 21, 15, he who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. That's serious. You strike your father or mother, you will surely die. And then even more shockingly, comes the quotation in verse 17 of this chapter, he who curses, he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Well, this is serious. That's a serious thing, isn't it? To be put to death for cursing your parents. And this is the command that Jesus accuses the scribes and Pharisees of breaking. It's not simply that they failed to honor their parents, He goes even further. He says, no, I'm actually accusing you of cursing your own parents. And that's a sin that's worthy of death. This would have been flabbergasting to them. How dare you accuse us of such a terrible thing? How did we curse our parents? What are you talking about? Look at verses 5 and 6. He's telling the Pharisees, but you say, this is what you say, you say this, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would... Help you has been given to God. 
And then he goes further, he says, and this is also what you say, you say that he is not to honor his father or his mother. So that's what they're doing. Let me explain this and unpack this here. What Jesus is referring to is a teaching known as the practice of korban. Korban. Now, Matthew doesn't record the word itself here, korban, but the Jewish audiences would have been very familiar with this, this, this terminology. In fact, Mark, Mark 7.11 notes the very word here, korban, and defines it as this, something that has been given to God. So korban means devoted to or given to God. Here's how this works. According to the Jewish tradition, the leaders here, people could go and pledge their whole estate to God, and so they could set it up that when they die, everything they had would go to the temple. So you could leave your whole estate behind to the temple to be devoted to God. Now, while you were devoting all this to God, of course, you could use your money and use your estate to live your life, and then whatever's left over goes to God. And so that's how they have that all figured out. And so once the money has been deemed korban, it's devoted to God, and you could not give it away to anybody else. Now, that's all fine and dandy until you get to this problem. The practice was then used and abused by some who saw it as a loophole not to take care of their family financially, especially their parents. And so here's how the scenario would go. An aging parent, a mother or father, would go to their child, their adult child, and they would ask for money or help. And in turn, the adult child was allowed to say this, whatever I have that would be, that would be helpful to you has been given to God. It's korban. I'm sorry, it's tied up with the temple. Nothing I can do for you. In fact, verse 6, the Sanhedrin even commands these people, commands them to claim korban, that specifically they would not honor their father or mother. The word honor doesn't just mean respect in the, in the Old Testament. It has to do with caring for your parents, showing them devotion. Because there's something that happens at a certain point in your life, and those of you who have aging parents know this, that at a certain point, the parents need care in the way that your younger child used to need care, but now your parents need a special kind of care that you have an obligation to provide for them. It's right and good to honor your father and mother and care for them and provide for them. Now, there's lots of ways to do that, and there's really no clear rule on how to best care for your aging parents, but the mandate is there from Scripture that we are to care, to honor our father and mother in the best way that we can. But they were going against that, saying, I will not do that. I could technically do it. I have the money. I have the resources to do it. But you know what? I don't think I want to do that. It's too much work. So you know what? Korban. It all belongs to God now. And so I'm sorry. They use God as a scapegoat. It's horrendous. It's awful. And in doing so, not only were they not honoring their parents, in doing so, they're cursing their parents. And in hatred, they're consigning their own parents to poverty and to death. And so Jesus says, And by doing this, you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Where does this come from? Because you're thinking to yourself, well, who in the world would do this? Who would do such a thing? Well, the next 14 verses of this chapter 
Jesus explains where such wickedness comes from. It comes from a bad heart. He tells them in the very next verse, verse 7, You hypocrites! You hypocrites! He blasts them repeatedly for their hypocrisy, for pretending to be loving and godly and virtuous, but in truth they're wolves and they're snakes. He calls them out later on in chapter 23. I'm not really looking forward to chapter 23 on some level only because it's such severe denunciation of false religion. It's hard to read. Even though I believe it vindicates the righteousness of God and so in that way, I'm looking forward to preaching that. But hear me rightly. Jesus has no kind words for this kind of heart. For a heart that is deceitful and despises people and dishonors people. And he grounds his accusation here in Scripture, namely Isaiah 29, 13. Now, if you were to go to Isaiah in your mind here, Isaiah's prophecy here includes a lot of judgment. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is pretty much mostly judgment. It's very heavy. And that is not excluding Israel itself. He has a lot of judgment reserved for uh, Israel and Judah. And in chapters 29, 30, and 31, Isaiah goes after Judah with a series of woes. Woe to you for X, Y, Z. He goes over and over and over. And he calls them rebellious children and even false sons. You people are rebellious and false. And he chides them for refusing to listen to the instruction of God. And actually from turning away from the Lord in their hearts. But in chapter 29 specifically, he rebukes Israel for their hypocrisy. In Isaiah, he pleads with Israel to read the Word of God and to understand, but they're unable to understand the Word of God. And you might be saying, well, what do you mean Israel doesn't understand the Word of God? Well, it's not because they lack intelligence. It's not because they lack ability. It's because they're two-faced and insincere. In fact, Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord answers that question and says the reason they don't understand the truth is because this people draw near with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They don't give me their heart. They give me words and traditions. That's it. And God rebukes them fiercely for this. Your heart's far away. You don't know me. You don't love me. You don't care what I think. You just give me vain words and empty traditions. Now, Matthew's citation of the verse reads a little bit differently because he's quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the sentiment, the truth, is the exact same. That's where, that's where Matthew is pulling from because that's where Jesus is quoting from. That very place. And he's quoting this verse to the Pharisees and the scribes because their actions fulfill the truth of that verse. You're no better than, than old Israel that turned their heart away from me. You're doing nothing better. The Pharisees, with their lips, they claim to honor God. They talked a good game. And they'd walk up and down the street... And you could always hear them coming because they have the bells on, the, on their tassels and they would make all kinds of loud noises and they'd blow trumpets when they would give. Can you imagine that? Blowing a trumpet, at the, standing in the back of the room before you're about to put in the offering box, you blow a big, huge trumpet. I'm giving now. That's what they did. We laugh, but that's what they did. 
thought that they were honoring God in that. And he says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far away. I don't have your heart. And what do you call it when your talk does not match your walk? It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And how do hypocrites practice religion? Invariably, they all fall into legalism. Every time. Teaching as doctrines, biblical truths, doctrines, the precepts of men. They invent ways to worship God that he never prescribed for them. In other words, they invent rules and they expect others to keep them as well as themselves. And in this way, when they do this, their worship is in vain. D.A. Carson notes that the Pharisees and scribes had displaced the true religion of the heart with a religion of form. Their heart was gone. They were just, it was just pomp and circumstance. Stand up, sit down, go here, go there, say this, sit down, do whatever. It was nothing to God. And that's the essence of false religion, of self-made religion. And I'll tell you, it's a danger even for us. It's a danger for us. We run the risk of creating our own religious practices that produce nothing but hardened hearts and false worship. You might be saying, well, what does that look like? We're not the Pharisees here. We're not the scribes, right? Well, there are no less than three ways that I believe we fall into self-made religion. I was thinking about this this week because I want to understand, and I would hope you do too. I want to know how this works because I don't want to do it. I want to guard my heart against false religion and and self-made religion. So here's how we do it. Here's how self-made religion comes about. Number one, the first way this comes about is when we invent rules to which demand obedience. And whole, usually religious systems will do this. There's lots of religious systems that invent their own rules. Uh, Fundamentalism in our country is notorious for this. But really, in truth, many religions do this. Many, many religions do this. Invent rules and expect people to follow them. And it could be something as trite as the way that you wash your hands, what kind of clothes that you wear, the various kinds of games or hobbies. It could be music. It could be the way that you posture. It could be all kinds of things. The way that you pray. Any man-made rule that binds the conscience of another. The Pharisees excelled at this. They, were so, they had whole books full of rules that they invented for people to follow. But Jesus rebuked them for it. That is not the way to worship God. The second way to fall into self-made religion is by misapplying the commands that God has given. Misapplying the Scripture. Twisting the Scriptures to make it say something that you, it never was meant to say. This is very tricky. Very, very tricky. Well, why? Well, because all these kinds of practices and rules, there's a Bible verse behind it. So as soon as you say, that's not what the Word of God says, well, look, it says it right here. Misapplication of the Scriptures. Misunderstanding the Scriptures. Taking things out of context. Now again, there seems to be biblical justification for these kinds of things, but we have to be very careful. And there are plenteous examples of this. Just a couple, very quickly. uh, Observing the Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's a hot topic today. Now again, principally, the Lord does command us to rest. Jesus said, the Sabbath is made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. So you're supposed to rest, but you're never to be a slave to that Sabbath rest. 
But even today, strict Sabbatarians will insist that Christians are required to observe the Jewish Sabbath. That's a Saturday, by the way. And there's even rules and and recommendations for how to do that. Yet Jesus refutes this repeatedly with the Pharisees. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul in Romans 14.5 says that we are not to regard one day as important as the other. Rather, we are to be convinced in our own mind when we are to worship the Lord. Sunday is not a mandated, a biblically mandated day for us to worship. We worship on Sunday by tradition. But yet it's a tradition that we all seem to adhere to. We're happy with this tradition. It works for us. We segregate that as the Lord's day. But in truth, there's no Bible verse that says you have to be here on Sunday morning. However, if you forsake the assembly, that's when the problem comes in. When you remove your heart from the Lord and you remove yourself from the fellowship of the saints, that's the problem. It's not the day. Furthermore, Paul rebukes the Galatians in 4.10 for observing days and months and seasons and years. Colossians 2.16 tells the church not to let anyone, anyone, act as your judge with regard to food or drink or festival or new moon or Sabbath. Dietary laws, that's another big one that comes back. What you can eat, what you can drink. These are not laws that are applicable to us in terms of our conscience being bound. God is not pleased when Christians place themselves back under Old Testament law as if our worship was somehow made more pure in law-keeping. And it's very deceptive. And I'll tell you, as, as a pastor, I'm concerned about this. Because we're living in a time where religious liberalism has gone so far the other way And we get nervous about that because they're casting off every single form of obedience to the law of God at all. No doctrine, no sound doctrine, no practice, anything goes. And so we see liberalism, religious liberalism, and we we want to go the other way and go hard and fast after law. But we can't do that. You're not allowed to go and chase laws and subject yourself to law-keeping again. Yes, Jesus tells us to obey His commands, but He certainly does not mean subjecting ourselves back under the the yoke of the law that He freed us from. Because if that's true, that God, through Christ, demands us to observe Old Testament laws, then Galatians and Romans is heresy. Think about that. We are not under the law to be bound by it. There is freedom in Christ. And so we have to be very careful, beloved, very careful not to misapply the Scriptures. But there's a third way that we trap ourselves in false religion, and that is through the creation of personal laws. Personal laws. Rules that are unique to me that I expect others to follow. Oh, we excel at that, don't we? This is very, very dangerous and insidious. Because it makes me the ultimate judge of morality and godliness for others. And that is sinfully wrong. It's so sinfully wrong, it's grotesque. Let me give you a few examples. We do this all the time. Be careful. You see another Christian spend money the way that you would never spend money. And so therefore you determine that they're in sin because they're bad stewards of their money. Even though there's no, it's an arbitrary thing. Well, I would never buy that. That's a waste of money. Therefore, they're in sin. Oh, be careful. Be so careful. Because we oftentimes will spend money on ourselves and justify it and then crucify somebody else for the very same thing. Pastors receive this kind of treatment all the time. 
Just so you know. It's dangerous. Or, here's another example. You disagree with another parent on how they're raising their children. Now, they're not breaking any kind of biblical law or anything like that. They're just doing it differently than you would do it, and so therefore you judge them to be unfaithful. Be careful of that. Or you judge a a style of music that someone listens to, or the kind of clothes that they wear. I had a man tell me one time after I preached, he said, I can't respect a man who doesn't preach in a full suit. I said, really? That's traditionalism. That is self-made religion. It does not matter what I wear. Now, is there anything wrong with trying to be presentable when you proclaim the Word of God? I think there's something right about that. But if I were to just get into jeans and a t-shirt and proclaim the truth of God to you, it does not make a difference to God. All these things. We have to be so careful, beloved. So careful. Be very careful. Now, are all traditions bad? Of course not. Of course not. All traditions are not bad as long as the tradition is not elevated to the place of biblical command and binding on the conscience so that if a person violates the tradition, they're in sin. Be so careful of that, beloved. Don't allow yourself to fall in that because Jesus blasts the people who do this. And so what is the root of this error? Why do we do such a thing? Why do we bind other people's consciences and attack them and rebuke them and put up, build up strongholds in our own hearts against them? Why do we do such a thing? Well, Jesus teases out the answer in verse 8. He's going to expand it in verses 11 through 20. It's the heart. The issue is the heart. He says, this people honors me with their lips. And here's how it goes. And you say, oh Lord, I'm only doing this because I care about holiness. But in truth, my suspicion is that you really only care about appearing holy to other people. That you look good. But the problem is where is your heart? Does your heart belong to God? Or is it far off? We heard about this last week with Pastor John Benzinger. Where is your heart? Where's your affections? Where's your love for Christ? Is it real or is it for show? If it's not real, then there's a huge heart problem there. And you're at risk of receiving the condemnation of Christ. Your heart is far from me. You don't know me. There is a tremendous heart problem that needs to be addressed. But praise the Lord. Jesus Christ specializes in curing heart problems. He excels at it. He's perfect at it. See, He saves hypocrites and sinners like me. He saves gossipers and slanderers. He saves haters and frauds. He saves the wicked of the wicked. And He saves us by His own blood on the cross which pays the full debt of penalty, the full debt of sin that is owed to God. He pays for the entire thing. All of our formalism and our self-righteousness and our wickedness and our hatred of other people and tearing them down, He pays for all of that sin that has been repented of. And He grants us forgiveness of our sins. And He grants us eternal life. And He grants us freedom and hope. And so that is ever our message, beloved. To turn from your sins. Examine yourself. Am I guilty of this very... It's so easy to look at this and say, well, the Pharisees were terrible people. I'm not one of them. Well, that sounds like the Pharisees. (laughs) 
It's easy to say, oh, that's them. That's not me. Examine yourself. Don't be fooled. Examine yourself. Is that me? Am I doing this very same thing? And if you are, and only you and God know this, by the way, but if you are, repent. Turn from your sins and put your faith back in God. Humble yourselves, as James says. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself. Lord, I have a critical spirit. I judge other people way too harshly. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. But thank you, Lord, for saving me by your blood on the cross. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for going into the ground and resurrecting the third day. Thank you for redeeming me. And and by faith in Christ, you have eternal life. Your works are not going to get you there. Your religious practices and observances and law-keeping, it won't do anything for you. Your faith in Christ will. By faith, we are justified. By faith in Christ alone. What a marvelous, marvelous gift. Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And if you don't, stop dead in your tracks right now and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone and you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are so merciful and gracious. And Lord, You are so kind that Lord, even though You've given us a law which is the measure of the standard of Your righteousness, that the law reveals our sins and it shows us our flaws and it shows us where we break Your commands. It shows us where we don't and can't obtain righteousness. But yet Christ frees us from the yoke of the law and redeems us by His blood. And we're so thankful to You, Lord, that You, by Your sacrifice, heal and redeem sinners. And Spirit of God, You are the one who convicts us of our sins and You apply all these truths to our heart. You bring our minds to life and You give us wisdom and understanding. It's how we know the Father through the Son is by Spirit, Your ministry. Otherwise, we would have no hope. And so we praise You. We glorify in You, O God, for being so kind that yes, we have transgressed every single one of Your laws, but Jesus Christ has kept every single one and has credited to us His perfect righteousness on the cross and brought with Him to the cross our full weight and guilt of death and sin. And the Bible says that He took it out of the way and nailed it to His own cross. Praise the Lord that we have forgiveness and life in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray, if anyone doesn't know You today, if anyone is caught in any trespass, Lord, please restore them. Forgive them. Give them new life only found in Jesus. We pray these things in His name. Amen.